pollinators are essential. Like, they are like the sun. They're just totally necessary for life on Earth. As someone who's growing a lot of vegetables, like, many of those vegetables wouldn't be able to produce without pollinators. But to me, they are about so much more than just us being able to grow things here. Like, they're about that, but then they're also about everything else. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Taryn Forma. After creating an episode on urban beekeeping in March, we couldn't get enough of pollinators. We wanted more bees, more hive action, and the chance to collect some buzzy audio. My name is Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and stories and ideas. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that this episode is produced in Treaty 6 territory, in a Miskwisiwiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. We've talked about the impacts of extreme heat on people, but how are the bees doing under a heat dome? And what about other important pollinators? Do local insect populations have a hard time when the weather gets hotter than usual? This episode, we join local beginner beekeeper and past terror and former Dylan Hall for a hive inspection and talk about the importance of pollinators. Because as we all know, there is no planet B. We can all relate to feeling sluggish and exhausted when the temperatures rise. And we're not the only ones. Researchers have found that male beetles also start feeling unproductive during heat waves. Reproductively unproductive, that is. In a study done at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, beetles, which represent about a quarter of the insect kingdom, were used as test subjects in a heat experiment. The red flower beetle, a tropical species that is accustomed to living in temperatures of 35 degrees Celsius, was exposed to temperatures that were 5 to 7 degrees higher for a five-day period. The result? Fertility of the male beetles dropped, with sperm counts decreased by 75%. When exposed to two heat waves in the span of 10 days, offspring production fell by 99%. Further, the offspring of the male beetles seem to inherit negative effects from the scorching heat, living shorter lifespans and producing less offspring themselves. This 2018 study was the first to do this kind of fertility research on cold-blooded animals, like insects, which make up a huge portion of global biodiversity. Outside of the laboratory, the recent heat dome hovering over western Canada has had tangible effects on local insect populations. Here in Edmonton, we've seen increasing ant and wasp populations, but limited mosquito populations because of the accompanying dry weather. Why bring up beetles, wasps, and bees in the same intro? Well, these insects are all pollinators. The work of butterflies and bees might be more familiar, but there is a wide diversity of pollinating insects, 
And science has warned us that many of them are at risk due to climate change, habitat degradation, and other threats, and face the potential of mass extinction. Last year, we made a lot of episodes about the birds and how much we love them. This year, we want to talk about the bees and other important pollinator insects. To get you feeling the same love, let's hear from Dylan Hall at his Aspen Ridge Greenhouse's home in central Alberta. Hannah Cunningham and I get up close and personal with Dylan and his bees to talk about pollinators and their importance for people and the planet. So I'm just getting ready to do inspection notes. I'm writing down the date, I'm writing down the name of both the colonies, and the things that we'll be looking for are if there's a queen bee in each of the colonies, if there's eggs, if there's young larvae, if there's capped brood. We'll try and keep our eyes out to see if there's any queen cells, if there's any swarming going on which is how the bees reproduce. They mm. will create queen cells and then the old queen will actually fly off with half the hive to look for a new home. And the new queens will hatch and then the first queen that hatches will actually make a little meep sound and the other queens will reply and she will go around and stab them and <laughs> kill them. Whoa. And there'll be a fight to, de- to the death in the hive, and the new queen will continue in the same space, and the old queen will go off and find a new home with half the hive. And we don't want that to happen, because we would lose half our bees. Wow. It's like a Victorian drama, like, royal court fight to the death. Oh, yeah. That's intrigue. <laughs> That's court intrigue completely. There's some incredible drama that goes on in the hive. <laughs> Tell me about your hives then. You have two hives here. Mm-hmm. You said they have names. Um, <laughs> one is just pond blue and pond yellow right now. We really should name the queens. That, that is tradition. We haven't yet. <laughs> Do you name the pond because there's a pond here? Yes, and also because I have some other hives at my mom's. So there's pond hives and mama hives. What are you doing right now? You're starting a fire. You've got what looks like the Tin Man's hat going. This is a smoker. I'm just puffing it right now to get it lit and ready to go. We start a little fire in here. And what we do, and why one would use a smoker, is because the bees, one of the things that is the most dangerous to them in their natural habitat, in their life in the wild, would be fire. And so when they sense smoke, they immediately start eating honey. And it also disrupts their ability to communicate and send out distress pheromones to each other. So as we inspect the hive and we take their home apart, they won't be able to say, ah, intruder attack as well when there's smoke. Okay, so we are walking over to the hives and our smoker's going and we've got a nice little cloud. 
Yes, you're a beginner beekeeper, right, Dylan? Absolutely. Very important to state. The technical term would be newbie <laughs> in the beekeeping world. I literally, I just jumped into this this spring. I, we were moving back home to start these gardens and I thought it would be a really wonderful opportunity to also learn about honeybees. It's been kind of like a long-term, something I've, I've dreamed of being able to do for many years. And I took a course from Elise Watson and ABC Bees, which operates out of Calgary. And it was an excellent course. It was really, really comprehensive. And that in many ways prepared me enough to feel confident to start and, and learn about the bees. And I found some mentors who are beekeepers that live nearby, um, the Andersons of Anderson Apiaries, that I've been visiting and learning from. And yeah, it, it, if somebody is interested in starting beekeeping or interested in wanting to do that, it's something to start thinking about well in advance and something that one needs to prepare for. Like to prepare for a season, I would advise starting in like January, thinking about everything that one needs and thinking about all the equipment and where you're going to get your bees from. Where did your bees come from, Dylan? So these bees came from Bill Stag and Sweetacre Apiaries, which is an apiary in Tappan, British Columbia. I will say that beekeeping is not an incredibly accessible thing to get into right away. It's definitely an upfront cost. Many beekeepers recommend starting with two colonies because you can see the difference between them. You have something to gauge off of how they're doing. And to start up with two colonies and simple Langstroth hives, they're called, which are just box hives, the standard ones that you would normally see out in the country, would probably be at minimum $1,000, if not a little more. And so what's going on here is we're about to do a little inspection and check out the hives. And to start, you always want to inspect from the bottom to the top. The brood chamber is in the bottom. That's where all of the laying happens. That's where all of the babies are. And the honey is in the top. These particular hives are a little bit different than most hives. They are still what's called a Langstroth hive but they are eight frame medium boxes rather than what would normally be a 10 frame deep box. I apologize, there's so much lingo in beekeeping. <laughs> there's so much jargon. It was like a huge learning curve just to learn the actual, um, a lot of the words that are a part of beekeeping. But these boxes are smaller and shorter because the reason I chose to do this is, is doing the research that I did. One large 10 frame deep box of honey, which would be standard for commercial beekeepers, can weigh up to 90 pounds, which is not something I want to be lifting by myself. Whereas a medium box full of honey can be up to maybe 50 pounds. And that's a little more manageable. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll start by giving them a little puff. Smoke in the bottom, 
through the entrances. You comfortable, Hannah? Yep. For the record, Hannah is not attired in this fabulous bee safety suit. <laughs> I'll put it, maybe I'll put on my long sleeve, just in case. Do you want to come feel the heft of a box, Liz? Yeah, I'm going to lift a box here and see how much these bees really weigh. Oh my gosh. Is it, it might really be a little, heavy? it might be a little stuck on the side here. Oh, she's done it. She's done it. Oh my gosh, it was so heavy. The thing that's really the heavy comb. is the honey. The honey. The honey is hefty. Wow. Because I don't really work out, but like I thought I could pick that up easy. I did, but it's, putting it down was the hard part. It's pretty small. It's like the size of like a drawer in like a kitchen and it's amazing to think that commercial beekeepers like the box they would normally lift be lifting would be about twice that volume Whew. wow which right. is why i chose the eight frame mediums okay this one yeah looks a little different this is the brood box and this is actually an eight frame deep because nukes normally come with deep frames you can see the older comb or the older frames there they have the darker wood that has been more walked upon by the bees. Um, these five frames were the ones that came in the nuke, okay. and the rest were added. This here is a frame feeder, which one fills with sugar syrup in the spring to feed the bees when there's a shortage of nectar. Okay, listeners, we're about to get up close in. and personal. We're going in. We're gonna take you inside the hive. So I'll show you a frame and point to a couple things on this frame. So in the middle there, the capped honey or the capped comb is brood. Those are worker cells. On the edges here, we have honey. They like to build their brood in a circle center and ring it with honey and pollen. So there's food available to freshly hatched bees. The bees through, go through different cycles. There's little newborn bees like that one. See how tiny it looks? Oh, it's wow, got little yeah. fuzzy hair on it. Um, bees will clean out their own cells mm -hmm. immediately upon being born. Um, <laughs> and they become nurse bees. And then they can become retinue for the queen. They have all different roles throughout their life cycle. Um, Near the end of their life, they'll be forager bees and guard bees. Um, they live about 42 days, the female worker bees, that is. In the summer, in the winter, they go through an incredible biological and physiological change, and their metabolism slows down, and they can live up to 215 days. Right there, you see... Some of these bees look bigger than others. See if you can point out 
The bigger ones are the drones. They have really big eyes. Mm. See if you can find any in there. Mm. Yeah. This one? Yeah. That would be a drone bee. Drone bee. I'm not gonna lie, they all look like bees. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them here, you see, they kind of do that little dance and wiggle their butt, like that one in the middle. So that's called a waggle dance. And that's how they communicate to each other where the location and the distance and the quality of a nectar source. Ah. So they can actually tell each other where it is, reference to the sun, the direction that it's in, the length of the dance would be the time in which it will take to fly to that source. Buzz buzz! You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CGSR 88.5 FM. We're back, live on location at Aspen Ridge Greenhouses, visiting Dylan Hall as he completes a hive inspection on his honeybees. So we've broken down the hive here. We've got three boxes on the ground. Bees are just chilling out, hiding in their frames, and we're here in the bottom box looking at the brood box to check on the queen, on the nursery so to speak, um, to see if there's any pests and to just, yeah, make sure our bees are doing okay in this heat, this high heat and smoky weather. Liz, do you want to try and take a frame out? Yeah, I'm terrified. Here we go. So, here we go. What do I do? You're going to stick that in here, get the notch in there, pull okay. it up. Okay, here we nice come work. up. Excuse me, Mr. B. Get off my finger. Oh, they're so sweet and little and they just don't care. Look. They're so beautiful. Wow. So what would you be looking for in terms of like bad signs, like disease or like damage or? A spotty brood pattern. So a brood pattern that looks like a shotgun is a bad sign rather than a solid brood pattern. We're looking pretty good right now because if it isn't capped, it's open brood and you can kind of see those larvae in there, little wriggling white mm. things are like baby bees. Oh wow, there they are. Oh yeah. The other thing you're looking for is eggs because it's hard to find the queen sometimes and you need to have a queen. If you don't have a queen, you're in trouble. Um, and eggs are a sign that she's been there at least in the last three days because mm. eggs only last three days. Okay. Oh, Very look cool. how glossy it looks in there. Yeah, the Is that honey. the honey? So that would be nectar. Nectar. Oh. And it's nectar, not honey, just because it isn't capped yet. And so for them to make honey, they actually have to dehydrate the nectar because the nectar's water content is much higher than honey. And so they actually dehydrate it anywhere from 18 to 20%. Wow. And water content. And then they cap it like this. So that would be capped <gasps> honey. Wow. Whoa. People hear about Save the Bees. What are some of the biggest issues facing 
honeybees, but maybe also like other pollinators. So one really cool thing is that the South Alpha, you see how many flowers there are on it. Mm -hmm. Same with clover, there's so many different flowers. Honeybees actually do incredibly well in Alberta because these kind of plants are so good at producing intense amounts of nectar in a really short season. In terms of the bees and, and how they're doing, it's a complicated conversation and oftentimes when people hear save the bees, they think, oh, the honeybees are in trouble. Oh no, maybe I should get a hive of bees. <laughs> and the thing is that all insects are in trouble. Um, and I think in part it's because there's just been such an extreme amount of insecticides, pesticides that have been dumped into the global environment for the last 70 years, more. And it's really hard to directly trace different pesticides because they either persist or, you know, the bees will get in anything and everything. But there have been studies that have shown that particularly neonicotinoids and also other insecticides um, do negatively affect honeybees in particular. And there are a lot of different diseases and a lot of different mites that afflict honeybees. And you might have heard of colony collapse disorder, which is something that was really freaking people out a few years ago. And in large part, that was just like beekeepers who kept tons and tons and tons of hives would have a whole bunch of different things all happening at once and their hives would collapse and die. But the thing is, a lot of these diseases which afflict honeybees only exist and are so prevalent because honeybees are so prevalent. They're like the cow of the insect world in many ways. That means, and because there's also like a global trade in packages in honeybees themselves, those diseases, those might spread everywhere. And because the bees get up to everything and in everything. But there's also millions and millions of dollars that are put into researching those diseases, that are put into creating treatments for those diseases, synthetic or organic, and that are put into trying to keep the industry alive because it's a massive industry. It's gotten to a point with agriculture where the honeybee is completely necessary for our continued existence in many ways because we're so dependent on large-scale industrial agriculture and large-scale industrial agriculture is incredibly dependent on honeybees. You'll have something like almond trees in California or apple trees in Washington or blueberries in Oregon and there'll be such massive, massive, massive fields of trees with no other crops that they all bloom at once and then they're done. So native bees, native pollinators, butterflies, etc. don't have enough to live on through a season. And honeybees will be brought in by the truckload where you'll have like thousands of colonies all brought in at the time of the bloom of the almonds or the blueberries and they will pollinate them so that they produce fruit and then they'll be taken out again. So just as the animal agriculture has been separated from plant agriculture, where cows are in feedlots getting grain that's grown elsewhere, the pollinators have also been separated from the plants and are being 
brought in and trucked in and contracted. Other pollinators, native bees, is another story because the honeybees, one, because they're an industry necessary for pollination and honey production, get tons of research, tons of money thrown at them, and so also lots of treatments developed to try and keep them going, keep them alive. Native bees don't get any of that. And there have been studies all over the world, both in areas like this and in protected areas that have reported insect decline in general. It's hard to know exactly, but in large part it's probably because of the large amounts of pesticides that have been used all over the place. There's a really interesting way that honeybees and and the way that like pollinators in general are in decline, that honeybees have been used as kind of this like save the bees equals save the honeybees. But of course, all of the other pollinators are really important too, like incredibly important to all life. And a lot of companies that maybe are really invested in honeybees have really used this to say honeybees are the thing. This is a whole other story and I won't go into it too much, but for example, I almost got a job with a company called Alveol. They keep honeybees on the roofs of big businesses and they do so in a way that is allows those businesses to say, we're helping save the bees. We're doing this for the bees. We are a more sustainable business. We're Simons or we're Via Rail or we're the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and we have bees on our roof. Thus, we're doing our part for the environment. But in many ways, having a hive of honeybees doesn't change much. Because the thing that's really afflicting the bees is habitat loss, is pesticide use, is even in some ways competition with honeybees. Because you might have tons and tons of honeybees in a field that's full of canola and then there's nothing. Even though it's been incredibly fascinating to keep honeybees and to learn from them, I don't think that keeping honeybees is necessarily helping to save the bees. If you're just somebody who's worried about the bees, one of the best things you can do is plant a bunch of native wildflowers, keep little mason bee homes. These are really cheap and easy ways to do it. Or of course, try and do something and engage in um, keeping down the use of pesticides in your local area. How did you notice your bees handling 38, 40 degree temperature? Honestly, they handled it a lot better than I did. They don't like it when it's that crazy hot. I took out the bottom boards so there's more ventilation. When it gets really hot, they fan. And they're they're constantly working to regulate the temperature of the hive. If anything, the thing that's probably been the hardest for them is that there's been no rain, or there was some rain in the spring, and things were really good, and the flow was on, things were producing nectar, but now it's been so long there's no rain, you'll see this field of clover that we're sitting in, most of the clover is brown and crispy, and isn't producing nectar anymore, because there hasn't been rain that the plants can turn into nectar. So that's probably going to be the hardest thing for them coming up here, is that there isn't as much nectar around. 
But they've produced a ton so far, and as long as we get some rain soon, then the flowers will continue to produce nectar, and they should be okay. Wow, this has been so great. We got an in-depth... Liz got to get right in there. Liz was suited up. Right in there. Hands in the box. Bees on my sleeves. Doing it. Thank you, bees. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you to Dylan. Thank you to Pond Yellow and Pond Blue for allowing us to visit and explore the inside of your hives. Done for the night. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for listening. Terraform is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to Hannah Cunningham for the interview and script support. This episode was produced by myself, Elizabeth Dowdell. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at terrainforma. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.